Section 47. Don't ship the org chart. ACG, Applications and Content Group. AICG, Applications and Internet Client Group. ATG, Applications and Tools Group. BPG, Business Productivity Group. 1996 to 1999, names of the division that contained Office. With the start of our company-wide transition to becoming enterprise-focused, the product group organization seemed to be in a state of flux as we began a new release to follow Office 97. Churn across the senior leadership team was a defining element of the middle age for Microsoft. Over the next decade or more, at least for me, it seemed as though we were always fluid at the top. We were either restructuring or leaders were being moved around, and sometimes both at once. By the time Bob Muglia, email Bob Moo, was my manager starting in March 1999 and around the release of our follow-on to Office 97, Microsoft had gone through three major restructurings over the course of seven years, changing the first to five main operating units, then to seven, then back to three. Just keeping track of division acronyms was impossible, and as fast as we could distribute t-shirts and logo items, the acronyms expired. It wasn't uncommon to enter an office with moving boxes that remained packed in anticipation of the next move. Desktop applications had four different executive leadership structures during the planning and delivering of a single release of Office over 30 months. From the end of Office 97 until we shipped the next product, the larger division containing Office would change names numerous chimes. ACG, Applications and Content Group, AICG, Applications and Internet Client Group, ATG, Applications and Tools Group, BPG, Business Productivity Group. The groups are each defined as office and other stuff, often not particularly adjacent in the market. Each one of those changes came with some feeling that even after the successful launch of Office 97, some things needed to be done differently. But what? While never explicit, the executive changes all had one thing in common. Each was a gradual move towards apps being managed by executives from platforms. There was a subtle reminder that the company was a Windows company, and importantly, that when it came to senior executives, it was the apps teams that needed leadership from platforms, not the other way around. It always felt like we were getting the message that we needed help in some way. The online version includes an org chart transition slide that shows various org charts over the period discussed. A level below these new executives, applications had been stable for quite some time. As described previously, from the earliest days until Mike Maple's business unit reorganization in the 1980s, the teams were organized by job function. The business unit function served well through the rise of the Macintosh business leading to office and the creation of apps for Windows, until the creation of OPU in 1994, the office product unit. This relative organization stability coincided with a growing execution capability on the team. While products were late, they were, with few exceptions, never out of control. Individuals became strongly committed to the individual app teams, and finishing what you started became a key element of the strengthening of the culture of apps. By way of comparison, Windows ran with parallel teams through much of the release, with one team focused on shipping the current product and another team focused on the next release. Culturally, there were starters and finishers. The starters were the big thinkers in terms of ideas and architecture, and the finishers were the closers who drove a project to completion and managed the complexities of fixing all the bugs, closing down ecosystem contributions, and so on. That meant at any given juncture, there were always two buckets with code names, Chicago or Cairo, Nashville and Memphis, and Whistler and Blackcomb, for example. When a product finished, there was a changeover in leadership. The finishers came in and the starters moved on. 
It was their culture. The presence of a future team seemed to me to almost distract executives providing a team to meet with and a place for all the new ideas to go while the shipping team worked heads down. The handoffs were never that clean, and with some frequency, the future product failed to make it to market or would change substantially with the shipping leadership change. Office, on the other hand, was predominantly single-threaded, as we called it, focused on one release at a time. Office believed firmly in a culture of engineers finishing what they started, program managers owning features from start to finish, and testers being involved from the start of a feature. Most of our performance evaluations and promotions were based on understanding complete product cycle contributions. The idea that features did not fit in one release and rolled into the next release did not work for us, simply because we started each release from a clean slate and awaited feedback or learning from the market. It was almost never a good idea to begin a release with what was not finished previously, a lesson that is even more applicable in today's continuous delivery model. Planning for the next release began informally around beta and then ramped up, a process that I worked on a great deal when developing and honing the office release process. Our view was that shipping was learning and that or assuming what was not complete needed to be finished was not the right place to start. The office team's single-threaded product development proved frustrating to Bill G and platforms over the years. And given the change going on with the internet, browsers, and even org changes, the pressure to be talking about the future was greater than ever. Lord customers also demanded more information about the future, a constant source of tension for Office that lacked the equivalent of the enterprise team that Windows had. Software was always in a constant state of deployment. Lords wanted assurances that what was being deployed today would remain relevant in the future. Thus, with Lords came an ever-increasing demand for long-term product roadmaps. Accountability to those roadmaps was another issue. As much as a company might wish to standardize on one version of Office plus Windows, the realities of the release schedules, updates, and desire for new features made that impossible. Like painting the Golden Gate Bridge, the deployment of Office and Windows was always a work in progress. The execs felt without a second team available for ongoing conversations, they had no ability to give input and influence the product. My own experience, especially in watching this from my role as Bill G's technical assistant and in seeing the handoff between several versions of Windows, was that much information gathered from those meetings was lost in the translation between starters and finishers. The handoff was a loss of team momentum as well. I never conv was convinced that it was possible to execute parallel releases. Our experience on Office 95 and 97 only cemented how difficult and consuming that could be, and we were extremely constrained and disciplined. In order to gain more visibility for what appeared to Bill G and others to be a secret office planning process, we began planning with more people from other parts of the company, the thought leaders. I documented the offsites with memos and notes and distributed these widely. This, in turn, created more demand for participation and sharing, which concerned me because we had a strong desire to keep plans confidential. The business relied on exciting product launches and reveals to drive upgrades, we had not yet reconciled the demand for product roadmaps from Lord customers, but were already familiar with the ability for any forward-looking materials, especially forward-looking slides, to find their way into the field, customers, and even the press. The online version includes an example of some of the notes from a planning offsite. These offsites were an integral part of building a shared view of a product's future. As much as offsites were loathed, 
I witnessed their effectiveness and not when working for Bill. As such, I put them to use in office. The offsites were a weird match between people who knew all the details and people who knew none of the details. But everyone had strong opinions, office stated as facts, when in reality, we had very little data about the world as it existed and none about where things were heading. These offsites were useful in bringing a common dialogue forward, and at the very least, when criticism was offered, we knew from where it came. During this transition, John and I were determined to embrace a new mantra, don't ship the org tart. By this time, John had become the VP in charge of OPU and all the apps teams, reporting to a series of different managers over two years. Collectively, we saw too many examples of shipping the org chart in Office 97 and across the company, where the organization mirrored the code and architecture that constrained what could be built, thus determining what would be built, regardless of broader goals. Developers naturally want to own code. Managers and developers want to know which code they own and control the flow of data to and from their code and what other parts of the system can use this code. Over time, for us, this created a code boundary that was enforced by the organization. Products ossify, and it becomes difficult to branch into new areas. These boundaries define resource allocation requirements. If a team took a certain number of developers to code one release, then it needed to have the same number for or more next time. Creating software is always a process of layers, each more abstract than the next. In an ideal world, there are clean layers of abstraction communicating only with layers above and below through predetermined programmer interfaces or APIs. In the real world, not only is it exceedingly difficult to create these nice layers, but it is also nearly impossible to maintain them as the needs of the product evolve over the time. In fact, innovation almost always happens when a new product comes along that has a different view of these layers, creating an innovative, you know, better performing, more secure, easier to use product by busting through layers. Examples such as integrating charts in Excel, background spelling in Word, or the whole of graphics features in Office 97 broke through existing or traditional code boundaries. Failing to recognize the power of breaking existing abstractions and, more importantly, not letting the organization determine how code is built is key to innovation. Having fluidity in layers and an ownership of code over time creates innovation and enables flexibility in the organization to take on new problems and bring new perspectives to how features should be implemented. Playing the release after Office 97 was a chance to step back and create a new process for a new Office product and a new organization. We started with the defining characteristic of a product planning process for Office, the best combination of top-down, bottom-up, and middle-out planning. This was straight out of the Cape Cod offsite experience, credit where credit is due. It contrasted sharply with the prevailing approaches to product planning that were used across the company and in most interest industries. Historically, plans for products were driven by the smart person or a staff who owned pulling together the slide deck. They presented this for review to executives. Over time, the decks became increasingly denser, but the overall integrity of the schedule, engineering plan, or iteration about the plan was all left for after planning. Much of this approach explained the difficulty of finishing a product on time. This worked well when a product plan was a known programming language or a known specification like a video driver. We had far too much iteration in what we were doing, not just how we were doing it, for such a centralized handoff or waterfall approach. Each app team maintains a sense of rhythm of planning, and there were many inconsistencies across the product. In leading office program management, I needed to find a way to bring synergy and consistency across the teams as we move resources from the app teams to OPU to create more suite-wide features. 
we de-emphasized app or category-specific investments. This strategy remained controversial for years, but it was abundantly clear to the market and well-supported by John Devon. In order to talk about a new release, we needed a name for it. We settled on calling the next release Office 9, complete with a logo from the design team. The name was simply the next version number, not anything more. Recall that Office 95 was the first time we bumped all the app versions to be 7.0, the successor to Word 6, and Office 97 was version 8. We debated the name of the release quite often, and we wanted a name that was completely nondescript and not exciting that would generate interest from the field. Originally, we even considered code names like the military used to use, such as beige, that would attract no attention whatsoever. But in the end, we just settled on version numbers. I wrote a memo, Priorities and Processes for Office 9, intending for it to be the planning kickoff, sent while the team was in the last days of finishing Office 97, meaning only a few were paying attention. The memo was a call for us to work together across teams. From a feature selection and prioritization, it was too little too soon, but it was the first stake in the ground of what will become known as a framing memo, a step in the process for creating products. The online version includes this memo, Priorities and Processes for Office 9. Most merely wanted to know the release timing, since that was historically the first guidance from management. Office 96 slipped nine months, painful and disappointing. Parallel releases proved brutal, and the team wanted to make sure not to do that again. The memo announced one release, one ship date, one product cycle. The rest was mostly lost in a team focused on shipping a product that was later than we planned, though it was less of a debate across teams than when we began 1224. The memo said we would have one of everything, one milestone schedule, one feature planning process, one specification process, one engineering process, one beta, one ship date, and so on. Writing any memo always presented challenges, especially when the organization took everything in it as a requirement or an absolute, or the opposite, random musings, random musings from OPU. Starting a tradition, the memo explained itself and what it did and did not mean. It was a framework, and any examples were examples, not specific mandates. At the same time, there was a lot of subtlety, because the absence of a mandate did not mean anything was possible. The polite way of saying this was that the spirit of articulated direction needed to be followed. The impolite way of saying this was that the desktop apps organization was extremely empowered in a bottom-up manner, but this empowerment did not give the team the right to do dumb things or anything they wanted. As a manager, writing a framing memo became an exercise in making sure I had a direct contribution at the start of every product cycle. Memo writing from execs and at length, other than from Bill, was something that few did on the product side, though in marketing and sales, yearly memos created by a staff were the norm. It was important to me to put myself on the line like this. The Office 9 memo set a goal of a product plan memo in a few weeks called the Vision Memo. This was the first use of the term vision as denoting a product plan. Historically, a vision was more aspirational and less concrete. But I chose to call it such because I wanted us to feel that a release was itself an aspiration, even if the document was supported by a concrete plan. It was a key play on words for sure, and some, particularly outside the team, were confused by the level of commitment in the vision. The vision represented our collective performance objectives and review goals as an organization and as individuals. The online version includes the Office 9 program manager process as well as other artifacts. The vision was the plan, 
The vision memo became a signature process and hallmark of the machinery that came office through the middle age of the PCs and later Windows. The process of creating a vision and a series of offsites and memos, communications became the subject of both emulation and some mystery. Teams always wanted to know who wrote the memos, when did I approve, or how were decisions made? While teams across the company looked to the artifacts such as memos, spreadsheets, and slide decks, the reality was it was a team that came together, and those artifacts simply reflected the collaboration versus driving the collaboration. Simply copying the artifacts ended up looking like the replicated food in the Squire of Gothos from Star Trek, knowing of all the earth forms but none of the substance, as Spock remarked. A unique characteristic of the vision is that it came from the product and engineering team, not a staff planning organization or the marketing team, as a market requirements or product requirements document frequently was called in Silicon Valley. This was a key part of building a plan that was a combination of top-down, bottom-up, and middle-out, again, using those terms from Cape Cod. We were still a technology-driven company and organization with plans emanating from the engineering function. Incorporating the business aspects of the plan was an equally important part of the process, but not the whole process, thus presenting a unified view of the entire business. For the next months, teams brainstormed about what to build or what code to write. I was struggling with how to bring about a more unified approach to planning. I zeroed in on the vestiges of the product unit organization. Each of the GMs of the product units was still focused on a single product. I proposed to John Devon that we combine multiple apps into teams, broadening the scopes of a GM while reducing the hierarchy of the organization by having fewer GMs. We shipped one office box. In fact, while we had many SKUs of office, the overwhelming focus and majority of business customers chose Office Professional, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Access, and the new Outlook. Sitting in the small conference room across from the big executive office where John Devon sat on the third floor of Building 17, John and I worked to converge on this plan. We settled on having an organization made up of authoring, responsible for both Word and PowerPoint, data access, Excel and access, and OPU, the office product unit. This might seem simple, but it gave us two benefits. First, each of the general managers had oversight for two distinct types of customers, for example, lawyers and consultants. Second, the opportunity for code sharing would present itself given the overlap in scenarios, for example, the mechanisms connecting databases in Excel and Access. The online version includes some of the whiteboard that John and I worked on that it showed examples of problems we needed to solve with the organization. With John Devine now leading all of Office, the logical successor for leading Office development was Dwayne Campbell, email Dwayne C., who was previously leading Excel through Office 97. Even though he was a development manager overseeing almost 50 people through Office 97, he still coded features in the product. He knew the code across every product better than most anyone and was clearly among the best engineers in the company. He also appreciated my Elvis Presley wall clock in my office. Grant George, email Grant G, continued to manage the office-wide testing function. Grant had proven himself during Office 95 and 97 as a supreme leader of large-scale testing. He single-handedly advanced Office in new ways. We shifted more resources to OPU, and for desktop apps, we continued to hire as many people from college as we could. Everyone was involved in recruiting. Office became the onboarding group for the company and was brimming with new hire enthusiasm of hundreds of college interns and hires every year. We easily hired over 100 full-time people from college every year, or as many as we could get allocated from the college recruiting organization. 
I was taking two or three recruiting trips every year and would continue to do so for the rest of my career. I loved college recruiting. One organizational problem we faced was that the newest member of the office box, Outlook, was not even part of this organization. After the heroic efforts to get the first version shipped, the product was moved to be part of the new Internet Client and Collaboration Division within the Application and Internet Content Group. After years of saying Microsoft would not have an Internet division, that would be like having an electricity division, according to Bill G. at our Internet Strategy Day press event, an Internet division was formed with responsibility for Internet Explorer, email, and many Internet-focused products and technologies, including Outlook. Org chart separations have the potential to take on a life of their own. Outlook was put in organizational proximity with the mail program called Internet Mail and News that was bundled with Windows 95 and eventually, and confusingly, renamed Outlook Express. It was codenamed Athena and originally the replacement for the inbox client from the Exchange team. The problem was that Outlook was also designed for Exchange Server. Outlook Express was designed for consumer mail and only worked with the internet protocols used by internet service providers and universities. In product reviews, Outlook support for consumer email was rightfully called anemic at best. Reconciling the strategy for the new Outlook product family became a high priority, especially since we already chose to name them as though they were related. The code bases shared almost nothing in common technically. Outlook 97 was placed on a rushed product cycle to fix the deficiencies in internet support. This is a classic strategy that almost always backfired, as would be the case in this instance. What was supposed to take a short couple of months at worst, and originally planned for weeks, stretched out more than six months and resulted in Outlook 98 shipping in June 98. Office 97 shipped in November of 1996. While the rest of Office was planning the next release, a key part of the product, Outlook, was working on what would be termed an out-of-band release. Worse, the release was rather a hack in how the internet was, was supported. Running Outlook for the first time offered up a choice to run the product in internet only or in corporate or workgroup mode. The whole product had basically been split into a giant if statement. It also missed out on all the planning efforts. As a bonus, the product switched to a different installation technology, playing havoc with our total cost of ownership story. Yet we had just finished launching and selling logs on Outlook as an integral part of the Office suite. The online version has an image of the setup dialog for Office 98 asking what type of mail you would use. It's super confusing. The deficiencies of Outlook caught the eye of a future college hire, Jensen Harris, he found time to create an add-in for Office 97 that enabled it to do some things possible in Outlook Express, but impossible in Outlook, and expected of any internet mail application. Jensen would go on to become one of the most significant contributors to design of Outlook, Office, and then Windows. The online version includes coverage of Jensen Harris's add-in to attempt to modernize Outlook that was in the press. It was all quite messy and the kind of crisis development that was rapidly becoming incompatible with Lord focus on our business. We quickly regrouped with the Outlook team for the next release of Office after they finished Outlook 98, though as, as a result, it fell way behind on integration of Outlook with the rest of the suite. This was literally shipping the org chart. We had to live with Outlook 98 in this state as we planned Office 9, and as we created and announced the Office organization. If the framing memo was the first step in kicking off planning, the second was putting an organization in place. The planning efforts informed the choice of the organization. 
while at the same time, the changes being considered, especially resource changes, inform the planning. Iteration of a feedback loop is crucial to moving forward while also avoiding lock-in based on the org. We announced the org structure and had our first experience realigning the team and resources for a new release. That was easy. Not really, but it was done anyway. We announced the org structure and had our first experience realigning the team and resources for a new release. That was easy. Okay, not really, but it was done. Rolling out the changes and announcement was incredibly stressful for most everyone in management on every side of the change. We even did a post-mortem on the announcement itself and collected feedback from a survey. Everything felt new. New organization, hiring many new people, new product mission, even a new business with enterprise licensing and lord customers. I did learn one thing, though, as I walked around the halls and the cafeteria after the org change. By and large, most people didn't really care or notice. They just wanted to know the ship date, milestone schedule, and their boss. That was a particularly good lesson for me. It reminded me of a story my Russian teacher from college told me at my five-year reunion when we caught up. With the fall of communism, I asked him what his friends back at the former Soviet Union thought. He smiled and just said, Well, everyone still had to wait online at Goom department store the next day to see what was in stock. A good reminder that even in times of significant change, the local effects are what people pay attention to. All the teams switched to using a variant of nine for the names of apps, and we looked and acted like a single team, Office 9, at least so far. <laughs> 